Well, tonight will be the seventh night of Hanukkah, and I, I spoke last night about the story of Tzafnat Paneach. Tzafnat Paneach. And I didn't finish the story, but I want to read to you about this particular fellow, a little bit about, um, about his life. It's actually in your Bible, by the way. Not all the details that I mentioned are in the Bible, um, but they're there. And I'm hoping that, yes, my iPad Bible is working. So if you don't mind turning to Genesis chapter 41, we're going to meet this guy. Genesis 41, verse 45. Pharaoh gave the name Tzafnat Paneach to Joseph. And he gave him as well as his wife, Osnath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. And then Joseph went out through all the land of Egypt. So here's my test question for those of you who were here last night. How many of you figured out it was Joseph? Good for you. Most of you came up to me during the Oneg and told me that you figured it out. I wanted to tell the story in a little different way than you might have heard the story of Joseph. And, and there's a reason for it. Because many times we think we know someone but we only know a little bit about them. And we think that what we know about them is their whole story. There were people who knew this man as Tzafnat Paneach. That's how they knew him. They knew him as an Egyptian authority. They knew him as a man of power. They knew him as second to Pharaoh. They knew him um, as one who was married to the priest's daughter and had sons by him, they knew him as if he were part of Egypt. He spoke Egyptian at that time. He had been dressed up like an Egyptian. Last night I mentioned some things about um, his uh, appearance, that he had a shaved head and that he had eyeliner and makeup on. I did that just to startle you. <laughs> but it, that, was a, that was an Egyptian royal custom, all dignitaries dressed in that way, in that fashion. And um, he presented as an Egyptian, if you think about it like that. He spoke Egyptian directly. He understood Egyptian directly. So when the brothers of Joseph are coming to buy grain because of the famine, that, that great famine that's reached even the promised land, they meet this man in Egypt as Tzafnat Paneach. That's who they're meeting. They are meeting him as Egyptian government authority. They're, they're meeting him as someone who really holds the key to their survival. If he agrees to sell them grain, 
then they can live. And if he doesn't, they can't. They're meeting an Egyptian, and when they're talking to him, they're speaking in Hebrew, and there's a court interpreter present who's translating or interpreting into Egyptian for Tafnat Paneach. Now, what the brothers don't know is that Tafnat Paneach understands Hebrew. Not only that, he knows who these guys are. They don't know who he is. The story is fascinating. And there's a certain moment when the brothers are talking about um, the, the family history that they have, about their father, that Tzafnat uh, Paneach is stirred in his heart and he's moved. And it's not necessarily understandable to anyone what's going on. But Tzafnat Paneach knows who he is. And he is Yosef ben Yaakov, Yosef ben Yisrael. He is Joseph, son of Jacob. This is who he is. And he knows who these men are in front of him. They are his rotten brothers. Right? These are the ones who sold him into slavery. These are the ones who misled his father. These are the ones who caused him to be the victim of kidnapping and human trafficking and taken to another country without any documentation, without any uh, citizenship, without any official ID papers. And he has to survive as a slave in the land of Egypt. The reason he's there is because his brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery. That's why he's there. When he was a young man, do you remember the dream that Yosef had, a dream about his brothers bowing down to him? Yeah, that didn't go so well for him. When he told that dream, his brothers hated him even more. His brothers perceived that he was a great threat to their future, and there is even the possibility that during this time of confrontation, uh, it, and it's a lopsided confrontation because Joseph knows who he is, they don't know who Joseph is. There's the possibility that Joseph will give in to thoughts of revenge, of self-justification, of, of proving something to them. There's even the possibility that when Benjamin, his younger brother, is brought, that he might keep Benjamin and have the other, the other men executed or sold into slavery or whatever. Now, here's the thing about this story as you're reading it. There is so much ambiguity throughout it. I, I started reading a number of Jewish commentators on uh, the story of Joseph, and, and some are struggling, was Joseph righteous or not? Was Joseph innocent or not? Was he in all of this trouble because of his past arrogance as a teenager? You know, what's going on? And then others are talking about how Israel ends up slaves in Egypt, 
as a punishment for the brothers having sold Joseph into slavery. There's all this tendency to explain the story by figuring out who's to blame. And I don't want to do that today. I want to do something else. I want to point in another direction. And here's the, here's the thing that was really stirring me. The brothers are brought through a combination of the sovereignty of God, circumstances beyond their control, and the chicanery of Joseph. They're brought to a place where they can examine themselves and they can determine, are they guilty of something? You know, sometimes when you're in a lot of trouble, you go deep. You know, why am I in this trouble? And that's what happened to them. As they were realizing that they are in great trouble, they started conferring among themselves and saying, this is because of what we did to our brother. And even in front of him, when they didn't know who he was, they began to make repentance. Now later on, Joseph is talking to them still in disguise, if you will, but it's not a disguise. I mean, you understand he didn't dress up for the occasion. He's an Egyptian through and through at this point by all standards of culture. But there's a certain point where he can't hold in the passion that's in him and he, he tells everyone to leave except for his brothers. He has all the Egyptian speakers, including the interpreter, leave uh, their presence. And then he starts speaking in Hebrew, which is a shock. It's a shock because nobody knew who he was. It's a shock because now they know that everything that they were saying to each other in Hebrew had been overheard. But the biggest shock is the first few words that come out of this man's mouth. Safnat Paneach says, Ani Yosef. Oh, that is bad news. It's not a time of rejoicing. Oh, our long lost brother, hallelujah. We've been looking for you. In, in fact, it was difficult for the, for the brothers to talk about Joseph and what had happened to him. The best they could say is, and Joseph is not anymore. He he's, doesn't exist anymore. They couldn't say he's dead because they knew they had misled their father. They couldn't say he'd been sold into slavery. They just said, he's not anymore. But he is. Boy, isn't that a warning for families? Sometimes when you think you can get rid of the troublemakers in your family, and you think, you know what? I'm finished with them. I don't need to ever see them again or have fellowship with them. They reappear. Sometimes we're the troublemakers and we're the ones doing the reappearance. But in this case, Everybody's in trouble and everybody's reappearing. 
the whole thing is, it, with a different tone, could be a fantastic comedy, but it is not a comedy. No one is laughing. In, in fact, when, when Joseph starts speaking in Hebrew and he says, I am Joseph, the error leaves the room and the brothers start suffocating. I'm using that metaphorically. They can barely breathe, they can't talk. I imagine they couldn't even look at each other. Have you ever been in an awkward situation where you just have to look at the floor or your shoes or something like that? This is what was going on. And Joseph is saying, I am Joseph, your brother. And then he goes on, the one you sold into slavery. You know, in case you were wondering, which Joseph? <laughs> and you know how families can be. Families can lie. They can keep secrets that turn into lies that become a fabricated memory in everybody who keeps that secret. A false memory where you, you make up a story to explain what happened and then you start believing it just because you've told it so many times. It's not true, but you act as if it were. And Tzafnat Paneach is ripping apart all those tendencies to lie. And he's saying to them, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into slavery. What a terrible day for them. Terrible. I think at that moment, Joseph also had to revisit every emotion, every experience. He had to renew and review his attitude. What would be his position about his brothers? And he said something which we'll read about later, not today. But he said, what you meant for evil, God has overturned for good. And that is very difficult theology. Because he's not saying what some people would like to think. I mean, there are some people who say whatever happened, that was the plan of God. Whatever happened, that was the will of God. And then they say, whatever happened, there was a reason for it. And I think that is an overly simplistic analysis of life and not true to how God actually works. God has plans and he has will and certain things are fixed and settled, no doubt. In fact, when Joseph was interpreting the dream of Pharaoh, a dream that had happened twice, Joseph said this dream was doubled, it was repeated so that you know that it's settled in heaven. It will happen. These seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine will happen. That has been settled in heaven. And so all you can do is prepare in light of that. But not everything is settled in heaven. It wasn't settled that the brothers would commit this sin against Joseph. But this is what we learned about God. We learned it from Joseph, that God can take circumstances that he never authorized, that had evil intention, evil motive, and evil plan, and he can get a hold of those of us 
who are on the wounded side of those plans, and he can turn upside down the outcome. The thing is still evil that was done. This is the important part. And this passage, this, this series of stories is, is meant, among other things, to teach us how to do complex moral reasoning and how to get out of the tendency to make uh, morality always an easy thing to understand. Listen, if you, want to, if you want to teach simple moral reasoning, tell simple tales. How many of you know about the boy who cried wolf? That's all? It's not from the Bible. It's not a Bible story. It's not, come on. This is like, I thought everybody who grew up in this, yeah, in America in the last 300 years knew this. The Boy Who Cried Wolf. How many, let me see a show of hands, really. Yeah, it's a kindergarten story. Exactly. And it's meant to tell you, you know, not to lie, because then people won't believe you later, right? Real simple. Right, but it's not complex morality, right? What if Rahab thought that applied to her? She would not have lied to protect the spies. What if Schindler thought that applied to him? He would not have lied. What about all those who were on the Underground Railroad, right? Who protected fleeing slaves? What if they thought the boy who cried wolf story should apply to them? Then they would not have protected those lives. It takes complex stories and situations with ambiguity inside of them to convey complex moral situations. And this is a complex moral situation. It really is. It has to do with so many things. That's why I've been reading widely about how other people are interpreting the whole Joseph story and the whole uh, set of passages that they're reading. And I find typically people want to, to find simple answers in the midst of this complexity, and there may not be simple answers. It may be forever complex, because you have to know the whole story in order to know everything. And some of the story is left out, and you have to deal with it. So you have to deal with issues of revenge, you have to deal with family rivalries, you have to deal with the covenant of God that's moving through generations to bring forth a united Israel. It's not easy to work through all of that, but the story of Joseph helps us understand part of that. I wanna change gears for just two minutes. And I want to turn to another Hanukkah-related event. We always read the story of Joseph during Hanukkah. But it's important to know that it was at Hanukkah that Yeshua made something very, very clear. You can read it in John chapter 10. The Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 22, is where it starts. And many of the translations get uh, the English all wrong. Here's one. 
that gets it wrong. That winter, this is an American translation, contemporary English version. That winter, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the temple festival. Wrong. (laughs) NIV version. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple for the Feast of Dedication. Right but wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it translates something into English that obscures the actual normal understanding. It would have been better to say Yeshua was in Jerusalem at the temple for Chag Hanukkah, for the Feast of Hanukkah. Because dedication is Hanukkah in Hebrew. And everybody knows Hanukkah is Hanukkah. We don't go around as Jews saying, let's celebrate the Feast of Dedication. So the translation in translating that um, does injustice to the term. Yeshua is walking in the part of the temple known as Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch. The people gathered around him and they said, how long are you going to keep us guessing? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And I want to give you only the first part of Yeshua's answer. I have already told you. I am the Messiah. And he goes on. Now this is, this is what I want to focus on. The fact that Yeshua did this at Hanukkah is important. Because Hanukkah was the time of celebrating the overthrow of foreign powers ruling over Israel in the temple. It was a time of saying, we remember when we were free as a people. And so for Yeshua at Hanukkah, to say, I've already made it clear I am Mashiach, he's taking a very dangerous position that you may not have appreciated. He is saying not just to the Jewish people, I am Mashiach, he's saying to Rome, I am the anointed one. I am the king of Israel. And do you remember the sign that was put at the cross? King of the Jews, right? because the Romans understood they were killing the anointed one who claimed to be the king of the Jews because he was against the authority of Rome in a spiritual sense. He wasn't the Messiah in the way many people were expecting. They were looking for a military leader. They were looking for more Maccabees. And he wasn't a Maccabee. He wasn't a hammer. He was something else. But when he chose at Hanukkah to say this publicly, he knew he was stirring things up. And it was going to be difficult for him and for all around him. And it was one of the ways that Yeshua showed his willingness to defy evil spiritual authority and evil governmental authority. It's just profoundly interesting to me. There would have been many quieter places and many safer circumstances that he could have done this, but to do it in this way, at this time, at this place, 
was a bold provocation equal to and greater than Moses confronting Pharaoh and the God of Israel confronting the gods of Egypt. Even greater than that. And it's useful for us as we're celebrating Hanukkah and it's happy time to remember at this time in Yeshua's life, it wasn't happy time. But he was doing something. He was looking for those whose ears were open to him. Now here's something that ties together the story of Yeshua at Hanukkah and the story of Joseph. When God pours out the gift of life that leads to repentance, it's an act of grace on his part. It's not something we deserve. It's something that he makes possible for us. Our response to such moments is critical. When God's grace is available, when it's being freely given, and we can decide at this moment what will be my response to God. Will I continue in the sin that I had done before? Will I turn away from it? If I have an opportunity again to repeat my sin under similar circumstances, will I do it or will I turn away? Yeshua put it this way, my sheep hear my voice. But the way the Lord was dealing with Joseph and his brothers was very similar. Those who heard the voice of God during all these ambiguous and complicated circumstances during the confrontation between Joseph and his brothers, these are the ones who are hearing the voice of God having to listen very carefully and make an important decision. Will they turn their hearts to God or will they sin against one another? The beauty of the story is they turn their hearts to God. And they put everything else aside. My hope for us is that we'll read the story of Joseph and we'll read the story of Yeshua with fresh eyes and that we also will examine ourselves and say, is God showing his grace to me and pouring out the gift of repentance that leads to life so that I too can come out of the repetition of sin and into the freedom that he has for me? And you know what? If we do that, things will get repaired all around us in our lives and then the lives around us. The people we perceive as enemies may turn into friends. The people who betrayed us may become our staunchest supporters. And in any case, God will use us together. He'll unite us together, all those who are acting on the grace of God and repenting and receiving the gift of life. He'll use us together to make a way into the future he has in mind. That's my hope for us. Let's pray for that. Lord, open our hearts. Keep our hearts open, our minds open, that we can be faithful to hear your voice and to respond, that we would consider carefully the grace that you're pouring out, that we could know for sure, Lord, what is pleasing to you, that we could turn away from our sin and that we could do what is pleasing to you. And Lord, let life abundant and everlasting flow through those worthy decisions. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? If you're standing by yourself, I want to encourage you to move enough so that you're not. And, and 
while my wife is up here, I just want to say how proud I am of the message you brought last week, how powerful it was, how many people have told me how your message was just for them. And thank you, honey, for being faithful. Mm. Strong woman of God. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Chag Hanukkah Sameach.